Well, last time I spoke, I confessed to you, uh, I have two most consistent prayers in my life. Two most consistent prayers. The first is that uh, it echoes David's prayer in Psalm 51. Of course, after his uh, affair with Bathsheba and his repentant state, he says, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And I need to pray that often. And last time we opened at Psalm 51 and prayed that the Lord would renew our joy and our salvation and that we would teach transgressors his ways and that sinners would be converted to him. But I want to share with you my other most consistent prayer request. It's this, make me more like Christ. Uh, It's a simple desire, but a reoccurring desire for a reason. I need it. We need it, his body. It's the desires of the writers of the New Testament, too. Galatians 4.19 says this, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. Paul says he's in labor until Christ is formed in the Galatians' body in the church there. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we read this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And the word there, transformed, uh, metamorphumai, we're being morphed. We're being transformed, hopefully, to look more like Christ. Christ-like transformation is the goal. It's our prize. It's what we strive for. And the goal of this lesson is to make much of Christ, to lift Christ high up, just like we were singing about, to put him in his rightful place, to lift him high. There's a verse probably that best encompasses this. It's 1 John 2, 6. It says, if anyone says that he abides in him or he remains in him, in him, he ought to walk in the same manner that he walked. About two years ago with the college group, we studied that. And I don't know that it will ever leave my mind. Uh, the word there, it's important for us to understand. It means it's, uh, it's peripateo. It means to walk around or to walk about. It's how we live, really. How we walk, how we go day to day, how we live our lives. It's not that of a snapshot camera, if you can imagine that but it's that of a video camera. If someone was to follow you around with a video camera, what would they see? Would they see you walking like Christ walked? Would they see you living like he lived? If we're going to walk like him, we must know how he walked. And so that's what we're going to do this evening. There's various ways that we're called to be conformed to him. We're called to be conformed to him in boldness, in meekness, in love, in teaching He used the scriptures so well in teaching. He painted tremendous pictures and gave tremendous parables. His discipleship of the twelve was exemplary. I love studying how Christ spent time with the twelve. And we are to exemplify that. Uh, His teaching on prayer in Matthew 6 and his example of prayer in places like Mark 135 where he rises early in the morning and goes out and is alone in prayer. I think of places where Jesus evangelizes in John 3 where he says, unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. Hebrews 1.9, I love this verse. It says he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Psalms 40 verse 8 prophetically says he delighted to do the will of the Father. And John 8.29 confirms that. It says, for I always do, this is Jesus talking, for I always do what pleases him. Matthew eleven twenty nine. this familiar passage, Jesus tells us to take his yoke upon him, or upon us, and learn from him, for he is gentle and humble in heart. Lots of areas that we could be conformed to Christ in. The most basic call for the disciples was this, follow me. Jesus says to him again and again, follow me. 
And I'd submit that call extends to us today, not just salvifically, but day to day as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We model him. We imitate him. We walk just as he walked. Just as Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean? What does that mean since Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father and he makes intercession for us? We don't follow him around like the twelve did, do we? Not in bodily form with us, at least. So what does that look like? Well, I think of growing up in north central Montana on a cattle ranch, and I would go out with my dad in the mornings, and I would feed hay. This was before I went to school. My dad had huge feet. He had these big snow boots, and sometimes at the ranch, it was kind of like Bozeman, we'd get two, three feet of snow. And I wasn't a very big guy, but Dad, he'd plunge through that snow, and he'd go through, and he'd make big old tracks. And you know what I'd do? What would I do? I'd try and step in his tracks, just like any little kid would, walking in my father's footsteps, trying to imitate him, trying to fill up the same shoes that he did. But brothers and sisters, we don't have just footprints. We have eyewitness accounts and inspired treaties that demand our attention about our Lord and Savior. What a privilege. As we've noted, there's many areas we could choose, many areas we could look at. Maybe we'll do some another time. But the night we're going to look at tonight, or the one we're going to look at tonight, is service. A selfless example of service in our Master's life. I hope you have notes. If you don't, raise your hand. Somebody will get you one in the back. Get some notes and turn. If you're not already there, turn to Mark 10 with me and follow along. Uh, Just for context reasons, Jesus has been with the disciples for about three years now, around three years. It's spring of A.D. 30, and they're headed to Jerusalem. They're going up to Jerusalem. People are following following him with great fear, wonder, wondering what will happen if he goes up to Jerusalem. Hostilities at an all-time high. They're plotting to kill him. They're hostile towards him. And it's at that time we see this. Verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. This exhibits good faith, doesn't it? In some ways, on one hand, in their part, knowing that Jesus was capable of doing whatever they asked of him. On the other hand, it's pretty bold to suppose that Jesus should be at their command rather than them at his. A simple switching of the words might make this a little better read. Something like, Teacher, we will do whatever you ask of us. Rather than, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. The fact that they're asking Christ to write them a blank check before they tell them what it's for doesn't help their cause either. But not surprisingly, Jesus says to them, What do you want me to do for you? That's an interesting question, isn't it? The author and the giver of wisdom, Jesus, our Lord, probes deeper and wider into the disciples' life. Jesus knows the thoughts and the hearts of men, and he could have told them the answer before they asked the question. But one of the most valuable, listen, one of the most valuable object lessons in our master's ministry was about to take place. And to simply deflect the question or to ignore the request would have meant to miss another opportunity to teach and give an example. Verse 37 says, They said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. Now, Matthew 20 is the parallel telling of this story, and it tells us that Mother Zebedee is in there too. Their mom's with them. So we get a familiar power play of family. This hasn't changed a bit, has it? 
today in elementary sports and college sports and schools and courthouses, moms doing the best trying to look out for their boys. But in this case, there's some personal interest at hand, and mom is doing some dirty work for the boys, using her elbow grease. And some have suggested, and, and I think they're right, that I think she was Mary's sister, which makes her Jesus' aunt. Okay, so there's some family ties going in here. There's some weight in this question. Let's look at the context of what's being asked. It's a pretty bold request, especially in light of what's just happened. Back up with me to verse 32, 34, same chapter, just verse 32 and 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. We just told you why and explained why. It says, In taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Christ is telling him he's about to die. But if you read through the Gospels, this isn't the first time. In fact, this is the third time that he's told him he's going to die. And capitalizing on this, and just a few verses earlier, Christ is telling him there's a reward. Peter asked what's going to be the reward. And uh, in Matthew 19:28, we get the rest of that. And Jesus tells him, he said, on this 12 tribes, or on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus tells him, I'm going to die soon. And so the kingdom is coming. The end is near. They're thinking, if we don't get our kicks in now, we might not get them. So we got to ask. We better hurry up and do this. This is the third time he's told us he's going to die. And on one hand, we shouldn't be surprised that the sons of thunder are getting their word in while the getting's still good. And part of me respects their boldness for asking and their foresight to do it before someone like Peter did or myself would have. On the other hand, on the other hand, their request just isn't bold. It's not just bold, it's brash. And it's arrogant and it's self-seeking, self-centered, and it reveals the elitist heart that existed in the men. It reveals the elitist heart that exists in men, in women, in our own heart. It sounds a lot like Diotrephes, who John wrote later in 3 John 9, loves to be first among them. He wants to be first among them. John wrote that from experience. He knew what it was like to want to be first among them. This isn't a new thing. Jeremiah 45.5 says, Are you seeking great things for yourself? Don't seek them. And I don't have to remind you that this self-centeredness goes all the way back farther than to someone who's almost as old as dirt. His name starts with an A and ends with dumb. Adam. Goes all the way back. The sin isn't new. And that's why you and I are so familiar with it. That's why we get this. We understand this temptation. We feel it. We experience it. Whether or not this temptation makes it to our lips, that's another thing. Verse 38, Jesus said to him, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? A cup throughout scriptures suggests the lot or pictures the lot, the future that someone's to take in. It's a good picture. It, It pictures digesting or taking in a sentence, good or bad, and to do it fully and completely. You'll remember Psalm uh, 23, 5, where he says, My cup overfloweth. 
in places like Psalm 116, verse 13, where it talks about the cup of God's salvation, the goodness, the joy that accompanies that. Other places like Jeremiah 49, uh, 12, and Ezekiel 23, 32, especially vivid pictures. I'll let you look those up on your own. But those picture suffering and punishment. And the cup they would be given is a cup full of suffering. Full of suffering. Perhaps they understood the implications of this. Perhaps they didn't. But in either case, I'd like to at least hope that the Thunder Sons had some sweaty palms as they gulped and nodded their heads and said to him, We are able. We are able. So Jesus says back to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Now I don't have to tell you how this played out. You know in Acts 12, 2, James is the first apostle martyred. He's run through with the sword. We find out in Revelation 1, 9 that John is exiled on the, Pat- on the island of Patmos, probably left for dead. The only apostle who isn't martyred. Baptism has the idea of being placed or immersed into, and they would get placed and immersed into some of the same physical sufferings that Christ did. Later, Mother Zebedee would watch in John 19.25 as Jesus was being crucified and not see two thrones as right and left, but two crosses. They would drink the cup and they would suffer. There was much suffering ahead. 1 Peter 2.21, Peter's talking to slaves, but it applies to us as well. It says this, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. That's our message, isn't it? He left you an example. What is that example? This time it's suffering. He says there's going to be suffering, not just for James and John, but for believers. Certainly you know that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Oswald Sanders, in his classic book on spiritual leadership, teaches on this passage in a chapter called The Master's Master Principle. It's a tremendous chapter. He says this, True greatness, true leadership, is found in giving yourself in service to others, not in coaxing or inducing others to serve you. True service is never without cost. Often it comes with a bitter cup of challenges and a painful baptism of suffering. For genuine godly leadership weighs carefully Jesus' question. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? So Jesus goes on. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but is for those whom it has been prepared. And then guess what happens? The ten over here. The rest of them here. Why? Why are they mad? It says they're indignant. Verse uh, 41, And the ten heard it, and they began to be indignant at James and John. They said, Hey, knock it off. He said he's just about to die. Why are you being so selfish? Oh, that's not why they were indignant, was it? How do I know this? I know my own heart, at least in part. But further, this isn't an isolated case in Scripture of this happening, is it? Flip with me to Mark, actually back up just a little bit to Mark 9, 33. We're about to see this. Mark 9, 33, follow with me there. They came to Capernaum, and when he was, and he was in the house, whose house we don't know, maybe Peter's, but he was in the house in Capernaum, and he began to question them. He says, what were you discussing on the way? What happens? No one says a word. They kept silent because they knew what they were discussing on the way. 
But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he calls the twelve to him and says to them, If anyone wants to be first, he should be last of all and the servant of all. And then he uses a tremendous object lesson. It says he takes a child and he sets them before them and taking him in his arms. He said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me. A tremendous picture. A tremendous teacher. What a tremendous master. This isn't the first time this happened, was it? This isn't the first time they'd been arguing about this. Let's look at one other example. Go over with me. Hold your place, but go over to John chapter 13. John 13. And we're about to look at, I think, arguably the most, or the greatest example of this. The greatest example of service. Everyone remembers this. (laughs) Not just in believing circles, but in secular circles. What a tremendous example. John 13 through 17, you know, is the upper room discourse. Jesus is having his last meal. And Judas is still there. He hasn't betrayed him yet. Or he has, but he hasn't executed his plan. Look at verse 4. It says, He got up from supper, speaking about Jesus, He got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Unbelievable. Right? And then verse uh, 6 through 11, he has this exchange with Peter in typical Peter fashion, and I can identify very well. Peter speaks up. Oh, does he speak at the wrong time, but he says the wrong thing again? Jesus teaches him a lesson. Verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, he washes Judas' feet too, by the way. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he says to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. That's our message, isn't it? That's our example. He gives us an example that you also should do as I do. Verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent him, uh, one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you, do, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Not just if you know them, but if you do them. As we look back at the text, as we go back to our text in Mark 10, I think a tremendous example of tenderness and patience would be easy here to skip over. Verse 42, look at how Christ handles them here. Third time, at least, he's told them he's going to die. Uh, they've been arguing about who's greatest again. What does Jesus do? He calls him over and says to him, what's he say? I told you I'm going to suffer an excruciating death, and the first thing you can do is come to me and ask me to write you into the will. He doesn't say that at all. I would be, I would be frustrated. Jesus calls them over and he teaches them, and he says to him, he teaches them again, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, this is how the world leads, isn't it? This is how the world system works. 1 Peter 5.3 warns spiritual leaders about this. When talking about shepherding the flock, it says, Not, Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples. Examples to the flock. This tendency, this temptation is in leadership to lord it over, to reign it over someone. Jesus says, Jesus says don't do that. 
1 Peter says, don't do that. Prove to be examples. R.C.H. Lenski said this, God's great men are not sitting on top of lesser men, but, but bearing lesser men on their backs. The model of leadership they had seen and known prior to Christ was neither anarchy nor democracy, but oppressive monarchy. Maybe best said this way, tyrannical dictatorship. That's what they'd been exposed to. That's what they knew with Rome. The Caesars, the Pilots, the Herods, think of their examples. These were their models, and some of them had worked for them. Now they get a new example, a better example, the best example. And he says to them this, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. This is so backwards, isn't it? I mean, totally backwards, upside down. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. This is where we get uh, our word, English word deacon. The word's diakonos. It means servant. And it referred to real menial, uh, useless terms. But Jesus doesn't do it that way anymore. He, he exemplifies. He says it's a good thing to be a servant. This is a picture, the best picture I know of self-effacement. Self-effacement. What is self-effacement? Well, it's a word best as I can tell, Rose. 1860s, 1870s. And Justin, if you got that camera, uh, it means to erase a mark from a surface or to make indistinct by rubbing. Let me tell you a story. When I graduated high school, a while ago, my dad, he came and he gave me, he slipped something in my hand. He was going through the greeting line at the end. He slipped in my hand. He says, uh, my dad gave this to me when I graduated, and I, I wept. Dad and I have a tremendous relationship. It wasn't as good then. It was very special. He gave me this. It's a silver coin. Justin, if you can, maybe I'll put it right here on the edge. You can pull this up. 1890 silver dollar. And in the world system, it's not worth uh, leagues. It's worth about $30. But what is it about this 1890 silver dollar? Try and hold it. There we go. You can see the face on there. It's rubbed off. Why? Because it's old. And it's been worked. And it's been in people's pocket. Thank you. This coin has been worked. And the face is worn off of it. That's the idea. That's the word self-effacement. There's no longer hardly a face on this coin. It's been worn off. It's indistinct. It doesn't matter who's on it anymore. The value of it. Now, the value has been decreased in the world's sight. But not in mine. It's a treasure for me. And by God's grace, someday I'll give it to my daughter or son at their graduation. Self-effacement. That's what Jesus calls us to. Getting out of the way. Self-effacement. Verse 44. Forever would be first among you must be slave of all. Slave of all. Slaves, you're not your own, are you? No, some servants are independents, but slaves... Slaves are slaves. They're not independent at all. Not all servants are slaves, but all slaves are servants. You and I like being called slaves in the church, and we like, uh, that's, a, that's kind of a flattering title for us, not in culture, but in the church. Boy, that guy's a real, he really works hard. He's a slave. But being treated like one's another thing, isn't it? Isn't it true that what we commonly call ministry in terms of mopping up spilled Kool-Aid or stacking chairs isn't generally thought of as leading? It's not all that spiritual, is it? But then again, neither was washing feet until Jesus did it. 
See, generally when people come wanting to help in ministry, here's what they mean. Can I give a lesson? Can I sing in the band? Can I make an announcement? Or can I lead a Bible study? These are all good things, tremendous things. They're things that need to be done. But rarely does someone come and say, Let me, what needs done, I'll do it. Let me help. Whatever's needed, I'll do it. Or better yet, sees someone doing nothing that does need done and fills in and does it. Let's be honest. Our attitude to the Lord is more often, I would like you to do what I ask, rather than whatever you ask, I will do. Our attitude is more often, I would like you to do whatever I ask, rather than whatever you ask, I will do. And in this case, He's told us. He's already asked us in the Scriptures. It's clear to us what He's asked. It's not wrong to seek a leadership role. 1 Timothy 3 says it's a good thing to desire to serve in the church or aspire to leadership. And all are called to serve in the church in some form or fashion. But Jesus would have us know what kind of service this is. I'll read you a quote from MacArthur, John MacArthur. It says this, The cost of true greatness is humble, selfless, sacrificial service. The Christian who desires to be great and first in the kingdom is the one who is willing to serve in the hard place, the uncomfortable place, the uncomfortable place, the lonely place, the demanding place, the place where he is not appreciated and may even be persecuted. Knowing that time is short and eternity long, he's willing to spend and be spent. He is willing to work for excellence without becoming proud, to withstand criticism without becoming bitter, to be misjudged without becoming defensive, and to withstand suffering without succumbing to self-pity. I need that. I want that. We need that as a people, don't we? Lord, help us to look more like him. Let me summarize what he said. Somebody's got to sharpen the pencils. Oh, you college men and women are tired of hearing that, but somebody's got to sharpen the pencils. What about those pencils that are in front of you? See, I'm trying to take notes with it. It's not sharp, Tanner. Well, most of the time they are. Somebody's got to sharpen them. You ever think about that? You ever show up and just wonder how this happens? People serve behind the scenes over and over again. Praise God. Praise God. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come, uh, came not to be served. Excuse me. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. And here we come full circle. For there is no greater example than the one who humbled himself and became a servant. There is no more grand model than the Son of God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Imagine the one whom from all of eternity's past has ascribed perfect worship in heaven. He exists in perfect harmony in himself and the triune God. John 1.18 says he's in the bosom of the Father. There's perfect intimacy, perfect harmony in heaven. What a mess. What a wreck he comes into. He steps out of the glories of heaven. Who would ever want to leave something like that? He humbles himself. What a humble, the most humble example. He should have been seated on a throne here on earth. Palm Sunday should have been every Sunday. Palm Monday, Palm Tuesday. The gifts that came at his birth shouldn't just have been a cradle thing. All the way to the grave, he should have been worshipped, exalted, placed in the highest place. And he washed people's feet? Who does that? Jesus does that. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Philippians 2.7 says, what an example for me. I need this. We need this. Here's our word again. Slave. 
2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty may become rich. He's the ransomer. He gave his life as a ransom. Oh, that you and I would be more like this. But how? How do we do this? That's a question, isn't it? It's good to have a desire, but how does this flesh out? Well, that's probably more for another time, but Titus 2, 11 through 12 helps us. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, not by the law, but because of grace. Because of grace. What does grace do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Jerry Bridges, in his great book, speaking about the pursuit of holiness, says, while requiring an all-out effort on our part, must be firmly anchored in the grace of God. This isn't some great moral reform or moral revolution. This is the ransomer providing an example. This is the grace of God. This isn't AA. This is, this is spiritual, Holy Spirit transformation, conformity to Christ through His Word and through the Spirit. Let us be careful to remind ourselves that we can do nothing apart from Him. I want to make this extremely practical tonight. This takes effort on our part too. That's why Paul says, discipline yourself to godliness. So on the back of your handout, if you have a handout, there's a reading plan. And most of you probably already have reading plans. And if you do, awesome. Keep on with it. Continue on with it. If you don't have a reading plan, try this one. You want to see how Christ walked? Here's 30 days. 30 days you can read through all four Gospels, and you look and you see who Christ is. I love doing this. I love doing this. If we want to walk like Him, we've got to know how He walked. It's a great way to do it. You can check that out later. Here's another great resource. We practice one perfect life. Tremendous resource. Blake only has one left in the resource center. Whoever gets there first gets it tonight. I bet he can order you more. It's great. It goes through, uh, in a chronological order, the Gospels. This is basically a a chronological study Bible on the four Gospels. Pieces the four Gospels together. It's really helpful. It's good. What if? What if the body of Christ, what if the people of grace, as we at grace, we displayed a marked difference from the rest of the valley, from those who aren't believers in the valley? What if the aroma of Christ went everywhere we did? What if we're in old Chicago and the waitress goes, what is different about that cat? What about that grocery store clerk at Town and Country? What about the copy machine guy at FedEx? What if the aroma of Christ went everywhere? He said, what is going on with that person? I totally ripped him off, and he was shrewd as a serpent and gentle as a dove. They're not going to say that because they don't know what that means, but it would be pretty cool if they did. What if? What if, brothers and sisters? When I want to be humbled, when I think about this, and I do, Luke 17.10, tremendous parable, says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've done only what our duty is. At the end, when we've done all that we've commanded, we're still unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. But I'm encouraged as I read the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 21. His master said to him, here's the end of the parable. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Boy, I want to hear that. I love being with you, but I can't wait to go home. Psalm 1611 says, uh, In his presence there's fullness of joy. 
I believe that just as uh, I walked and tried to walk in my dad's big footsteps in the snow and his, he looked back and took great pleasure as I tried to walk like him, our Father who is in heaven looks with great pleasure on his children desiring and striving to walk just as he walked. And there's hope. There's hope. The same brash, self-centered John who wants to call down fire from heaven and usurp authority and trample his way to the top. Later he writes this, If anyone says they abide in him, they ought to walk just as he walked. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to walk more like him. We want to look more like your son. We can't do this on our own. We beg for your grace. It is our prayer. What a devotion this has been to my own heart, Lord. You know how you've twisted and worked on my own pride in this. I beg that you'd, that you'd conform us ever more to Christ. Slowly and surely grant us grace to press on as the body here and to have the aroma of Christ. God, I want to beg for those here who don't know you, who don't see you as the ransomer, that you'd open their eyes to the truth, that you'd cause them to repent and believe. And for those who do know you here, that we'd be greatly built up in your grace and in your word and that we'd press on or that we'd endure all the way to the end. Help us to transform, to be more like him. We ask in the precious name of your son. Amen.